Today our scripture passage comes from the Gospel of John in the ninth chapter. We are continuing in a series in which we are living with the man who was born blind and who was healed by Jesus. In the first passage we read two weeks ago, we learned about how a man was blind. He was by the side of the road. Later on we learned out he was a beggar. And Jesus and the disciples were walking by and the, and the disciples asked, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus said, neither of them sinned, but God's grace will be shown through them, through this man. In the second passage, what Scott preached last week, we, we saw a lot of skepticism. The man went back home and his neighbors didn't believe he'd been healed. There was a lot of question about, you know, really? And the Pharisees, some of the religious leaders of the time, also didn't believe, and they were particularly upset because the story was going around that the man had been healed by Jesus, and they didn't like Jesus. They were opposed to him. And so we begin uh, in this passage with John chapter 9, and I begin at verse 18, reading all the way through 34. The religious leaders did not believe that the man had been born blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son? who you say was born blind. How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how he, it is that he now sees, nor do we know how, who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the religious leaders, who had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, the leaders called the man who had been born blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, meaning Jesus, is a sinner. The man answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They, they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? The man answered them, I have told you already, and you did not believe me, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as far as this man, we don't know where he has come from. The man answered, here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The leaders answered him, You were born entirely in sin, and you are trying to teach us? And they drove him out. This is the word of God for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you to pray with me. 
May the words that I say and the reflections that go through all of our minds, may these give you pleasure, God, you who are our rock, you who save us. Amen. I don't always see the things that are pointed out to me. Sometimes there will be a crowd and someone will say, oh, do you see so-and-so? And I'm looking in the crowd, but I just don't see them. Last weekend, I was in Scottsdale, Arizona with friends. We were walking along the old Scottsdale area, and we walked past a bar, and my friend said, oh, did you see that? And I looked back, and, you know, it's a dark bar. It's very bright outside, and I didn't see anything. And they said, well, that, by the bar. And I looked back again. I didn't see it. Apparently, there was a bar stool that was painted in a certain way, but I just didn't see it. Sometimes things are pointed out to me, and I can't perceive what I'm supposed to see. Or I think about certain kinds of drawings. Some of you will remember when Magic Eye was really popular, and you'd have this kind of mixture of colors, and the foreground and the background, and you'd look for a while, and then a pattern would come out of it. Well, I don't know what my problem is, but I'm really bad at magic eye. <laughs> so I would stare and stare, and they'd say, oh, you know, it's a sheep. I'm not seeing the sheep. Now, there was another one. This is much older, so a lot of you won't remember this, but there was one that went around when I was a kid, and it was two visions of a woman. On one side was a woman who was a very beautiful younger woman, and she had this kind of... Uh, back rough or thing on the back of her neck. But if you looked at it the opposite way, you would see an old woman and her mouth was open like this. <laughs> so very ugly older woman or beautiful younger woman, same lines, but you could see it in different ways. That one I saw. It can be hard to see everything that is before us. Today we hear a story about Jesus healing a man born blind, and it is a story about Jesus healing the, the vision, the physical vision of the man. But it's also a story about something else, about people who are blind to what God is doing in the world. Today I want to focus particularly on the human rules we have and how sometimes our rules of how God might act or through whom God might act get in the way of our perceiving what God is actually doing. So I want to reflect with you on the story itself and then look at some particular examples of our time where we may need some healing in our sight. But first, the story itself. This poor guy, we don't even know his name. All we know is he's the man born blind and he's sitting by the side of the road and he doesn't ask to be healed. Jesus and the disciples are walking past him. The disciples want to talk theology. They want to know who to blame. Hey, was it him or his parents? And Jesus is enough with the blame, but God's going to work through him. And so Jesus goes and makes a paste and puts it on the man's eyes and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man washes his eyes. He comes back. He can see. Now, this ought to be a cause for rejoicing, but that's not how the people around him respond. Immediately, over and over again, he gets opposition. He goes to his neighbors, and the neighborhood doubts it. His parents won't back him up. They will say, yes, he was born blind, but they won't back him up either. The religious leaders are really mad about this because the deal is they don't like Jesus. So here is this man going around saying that Jesus had healed him, and they don't like this story. They don't want to hear it. So there's frankly nothing that this man can say 
that's going to turn the religious leaders around because they think Jesus is a sinner. So they keep trying to trap the man born blind, but he won't have it. He just keeps saying over and over again, here's what I know. I was blind, and now I see. When they engage in theological argument, it turns out that the man born blind is better at it than the religious leaders. They get really angry, and they cast him out. We see a kind of progression for the man in the opposition he faces and the way that the longer he feels that sense of opposition, the stronger he actually becomes in his faith. At the beginning, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Then he knows his name is Jesus. At verse 14, at the end of the passage Scott preached last week, he says, he's a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. As this passage goes on, what does he say? He asks the Pharisees, do you want to be his disciples too? Meaning, I'm his disciple. So he goes from not knowing the name to knowing the name to thinking Jesus is the prophet. By the end of this passage, he's a disciple of Jesus. And we'll hear more about the man's spiritual growth next week in next week's sermon. So the man has been opposed, but throughout it, he's realizing more and more what's happened. He was blind, and now he can see this Jesus is the Son of God, is acting out the will of God. Isn't it striking how sometimes really good things happen, but if it doesn't fit our definition of how it should happen, sometimes we don't quite see it. I think of an example when I was serving my church in Naperville. We had a new member, really neat guy, Jim. He was from the South, and he was used to a Southern church culture where people dressed up much more for coming to church. Okay, you in the 11 o'clock service, you are so going to relate to this story. So, Jim is new, we're in a kind of more formal service, and one of the teenagers came up to light the candle up on the altar to be the acolyte. After the service, Jim came up to me kind of distressed, and he said, you know, that teenager that went up, did you see that? Like, he lit the candle. Well, apparently, the teenager who lit the candle had been wearing tennis shoes. In Jim's southern church culture, Wearing tennis shoes wasn't respectful. You had to wear your dress shoes to go to church. And particularly someone who was going to walk up to the altar, surely you would wear the best shoes you had. So I said to Jim, let me check it out with Nick, our youth minister. So I went to Nick and asked him about it. Nick said, do you realize kids wear tennis shoes? They don't own anything else. They own tennis shoes. They own sandals. That's it. And I want to be clear, we were in Naperville with pretty affluent families. These were not families that could not afford a second pair of shoes. This was just, the style had changed. Now, bless him, I went back and explained this to Jim, and Jim totally got it. He's a really good guy. So once I said, you know what, turns out in the North, they wear tennis shoes. And here's the good news. A teenager was leading us in worship. That doesn't happen all the time. So are we going to get upset at what we perceive as a little casual clothing, or are we going to praise God that a teenager was leading us in worship? Which do you think is more important? I think it's pretty clear. But human rules can get in the way of our seeing how God can act. Or I think even a more personal example for our own congregation, and I'm part of the story, so I'm not picking on anyone. When we started the capital campaign, we, part of the goal of the campaign was to receive enough in capital campaign, campaign, 
payments and so that we could make our capital payments on our debt from the gifts that were coming in and that would free up money in our operating budget so that we could spend more on ministry. And friends, you've been very generous. That's what's happened. Part of that was to expand the children's ministry position from part-time to full-time. And there was a vision, I think, for many people that when the children's ministry position went from part-time to full-time, this chancel every Sunday would be full of children. Wouldn't that be cool? So there was this vision of chancel full of children. Surely, that's what's going to happen. That's what success looks like. Well, the years have passed. The campaign is going really well. And some Sundays we have a chancel full of children, but other Sundays we don't. Here's the wild thing where we're really seeing God's movement around children isn't Sunday mornings. It's Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights, Joy offers a program called JAM, Jesus and Me. And JAM works with the Bible story and teaches it through storytelling and games and crafts, and the kids love it. They love it so much that they invite their friends to come to JAM. That's where the kids want to be. And the kids, when they were coming to Sunday school, were getting, what, maybe half an hour, 40 minutes. Now they come to jam, they get an hour and a half. The other place we're really seeing God working is in VBS, the Summer Vacation Bible School. We get a lot of our own kids who belong to our church families, but we also get a lot of people inviting their friends because VBS is so much fun. Yes, some of the families join after VBS. Yes, it's also true that a lot of the families don't. Would I love every VBS family to join the church afterward? Sure, but it turns out that's not what's happening. Here's another thing that's happening. Our younger families are under a huge amount of stress. In many of our young families, we've got a single parent or we have two parents who are both working full-time and they're exhausted, and Saturday is their day to run around do errands, and Sunday, maybe they could just finally sleep in. They're exhausted, and they don't always make it to church. Would I love to see them in church? Sure. But am I going to judge them because they're not here? I'm not. And here's the deal. Yesterday, Saturday, I got up and I walked my dog and fed her, and I went back to bed. <laughs> I can't do that today. It's Sunday. I work. So I get it. I get it when some of our families are exhausted and they're not here on Sunday mornings. Again, do I miss them? You bet but am I going to judge them? No. Some of those families that aren't here Sunday mornings are getting their kids to worship on Wednesday nights, and they get an hour and a half of Christian teaching then. It'd be great if they were both places, but in the meantime, we're seeing kids learn about the good news of Jesus and have a blast, and that's a really good thing. So am I going to be part of the capital campaign and complain that God didn't bring us a bunch of kids to our chancel? That's my rule of how this was supposed to work. Or am I going to praise God for the amazing flowering we've seen in the Jesus and Me program and in VBS? Am I going to let human rules get in the way of my perception of how God is working? God works in all sorts of ways and through people that we might not automatically have assumed would be the people through whom God would work. God came to us in Jesus Jesus, the Son of God, fully human, fully divine. And a lot of people were thrilled with what Jesus was doing, and they followed him, but other people did not like it a bit. It disrupted what they wanted. It disrupted their views of who's in power and who's in charge. And frankly, 
as we saw, this man, the man born blind, experienced disruption from his belief in Jesus. He was a beggar minding his own business, and by the end of it, he's thrown out of the synagogue and has received all this opposition. Jesus' coming to his life has kind of messed things up, except it hasn't. This man has been changed. This man has received his sight. He also perceives who Jesus is. And he's found a kind of freedom in knowing Jesus, a freedom so strong that even though his parents are afraid of repercussions, he's not. And he'll say, yep, Jesus, all I know is I was blind. Jesus healed me. And he becomes Jesus' disciple. He receives a kind of courage that hadn't been in him before. Something happens when Christ comes into our lives. We may experience opposition, but we also can receive this remarkable strength to stand firm in what God has done in and through and for us. One of the pieces we often miss, I missed, until I read it in a commentary about this passage, is that this story is the basis for one of our favorite hymns in the Christian tradition in the United States. What does the man say? I was blind, but now I see. This, this story is the basis of the song Amazing Grace. What does John Newton, the, the author of Amazing Grace, write? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. When Jesus heals us, Jesus can heal our physical wounds and, and disabilities, but Jesus can also work in spirituality and in spiritual blindness. John Newton was a man who was spiritually blind. John Newton was a British man. He lived in England, and he was part of the slave trade. He was part of the trade that would leave England for Africa with, with hulls full of supplies to sell to the African people. And then he would leave African with the hull full of humans, human Africans who they uh, took down to the hull and chained to the base of the ship and then took that long, terrible middle passage across to the Caribbean, to South America, up to uh, what were the U United States colonies and then the United States of America. And he made a lot of money. He made a lot of money as a slave trader. That worked really well for him until Jesus came into his life and healed his perception. And he realized the Africans that I've been taking over to the Americas are human beings. They are beloved children of God, and I made my money off treating them as property. I am a wretch. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He it feels so ashamed. And yet in his shame, he also experiences forgiveness as he repents so that he can say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. John Newton didn't work as a slave trader anymore after Christ came into his life. And frankly, he didn't make as much money after Christ came into his life. He made a lot more as a slave trader, and he didn't care. But I wonder, and I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder how people reacted when John Newton had his conversion experience. I wonder if people looked at him and said, slave, he's a slave trader. He doesn't believe in Jesus. Oh, he's had a big conversion. Yeah, right. I wonder how much opposition he might have experienced after he told the story of what Jesus had done for him. 
My hunch is he had an experience a lot like this blind man, with a lot of people pushing back against him and saying, oh, come on, this guy can't really have been a slave trader, or other questions, come on, this didn't really happen. And John Newton saying, yes, it did. I was a wretch, I was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is amazing. And Jesus can come to us in the midst of our woundedness and heal us. And Jesus can come into the places where we struggle in our own perceptions and can give us a broader sight, can help us see in a way we didn't see before. I would commend to you an exercise that comes out of this. This is a, a Bible that was given to me by a friend. It's called the Meeting God Bible. Meeting is intimacy with, creating intimacy with God through Scripture. It's published by Upper Room Press. And in the Meeting God Bible, it has the, uh, I lose my place, it has in the center the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, but on the sides it has uh, exercises, things you can meditate on or actions you can take to come to know the Bible more deeply and to come to know Jesus face to face. Here's the exercise it recommends for chapter 9, verse 25, though I was blind, now I see. It suggests you do this, and I would encourage you to consider doing this at home. Fill a bowl with water. As you sit in a comfortable position, focus your attention on Christ. Ask him to cover you and fill you with healing light to show you some part of your life to which you are blind, perhaps a responsibility you don't see or an attitude that blinds you to the truth of a situation. Ask Christ to enable you to see what he wants you to see. Wash your eyes with the water, praying that you may see with the eyes of Christ. Ask for power and courage to take whatever action your renewed spiritual sight requires. Here is the good news. We may be blind, but Christ can come into our sight. Christ can renew our seeing and show us those things to which we were blind. And we can experience real freedom, real sight. Thanks be to God. Amen.